I invite you to rise for the gospel today for the third Sunday of Advent is Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 11. I did say that there would be two weeks, usually in every Advent, where the gospel focuses on John. We heard the proclamation last week, and this time we find that John is in prison, but he still keeps his ear to the streets and listening as to the work that Jesus is doing. So this passage today is a question that John has for Jesus, and then it's Jesus' response to John and to the community that comes out to hear him. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one to come or should we wait for another? Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you more than a prophet. This is what is said about the one whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. But yet, he, even the least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than he. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of today's gospel. You may be seated. Let us pray. Loving and most merciful God, we thank you for this day that you have given us and for the third Sunday of Advent because we mark the joy. The joy as the anticipation of the Christmas narrative, being closer to it, and the opportunity to relive that narrative and to be warmed by it all over again is not very far away. Yet we are still in the season of preparation. So allow us to intersect with today's gospel and the place where you find us in our own lives as we constantly rethink and re-explore and relearn what this Christian narrative is for us at this time and place and how we might respond to it most effectively that we might be able to serve those that we are privileged to serve with the gifts that you have given us. May the words of my mouth, meditations of our hearts, be an offering which you find pleasing in all ways. Keep your eye upon us and guide us ever so gracefully that we might continue to complete the work that you have charged us to do. Amen. So John's in prison. And just to give you a little recap as to why John found himself in prison, we know that John didn't hold his tongue. It wasn't his call to hold his tongue. It was his call to prepare hearts and minds for the coming of the Messiah. And John made no distinctions, at least the scriptures tell us that John made no distinctions between those who were born into privilege and those who didn't have anything, a place to call 
their, their home. He began to turn his attentions to the king. And Herod had done a thing which John dis disproved of, but not just John, but he felt that it just wasn't a good look for anyone who was pursuing uh, the, the realm of God. He had taken his brother's uh, wife to be his wife. And John spoke passionately about this, uh, to the vexation, of course, to the king's wife. And the king knew that, that perhaps he was in, involving himself in some indulgences, and John sort of brought him to the awareness of that. But he didn't want any harm to come to John. So Herod had him in prison. That way he figured, if he's in my prison, he can be safe there because I can keep watch of him. There wouldn't be any other assailants or assassins that could, that could jump on him out, out in the wilderness where he wouldn't have a, a guard. So I'll put him in my jail. I know it's backwards thinking because we know how the story goes. I mean, John ultimately did get dispatched because it was rather convenient for those who were seeking his life to know where he was at. But this was Herod's thinking. He felt John was a prophet indeed, and so he was, he was vexed in spirit. Here is this man who's a prophet. I don't want any harm to come to him on my account. But while John was inside, he still had his feelers out, right? Uh, maybe some of you are surprised to hear that John the Baptist had disciples, but he did. He had disciples because he was charismatic and high-profile figure. How else are you going to get people to come down to the River Jordan to prepare themselves for this baptism of repentance? You know, you've got to have somebody out there who's, who's selling it. I mean, if John was Jesus' hype man, John had to have his hype men too, right? You know, it's like, come on down to see John. It's one time showing, you know, and people want to come down and <laughs> check out what's happening. And not because it was a spectacle that was external, but it was the sort of spectacle that calls you into accountability. That's, that's what I like about John's proclamation, is that it invites us to have skin in the game. It invites us to be part of the narrative. It's not like, oh, look at this thing that John's doing that's, that's external from us. It's look at this invitation that John is extending to us that envelops us and everyone who will come after us. So I, I like that part of John's proclamation, is that it was an embodiment of, hey, this is something that we can all play, providing that you know the ground rules and you're willing to do the work. So I like that about John, and I like that just about each and every one of us being in a, a position to proclaim the gospel in our own way to our own people, family, and friends, is the enthusiasm and the excitement of being able to buy into the narrative and to be able to participate in it as fully as humanly possible. So John's hearing things that Jesus is doing, but John was definitely a product of his times. I, I, mean, I, I, I adore the ministry that he did, and like I said, he's, he's aspirational for me. I will never be able to attain his level of, of certitude of vocation. John had a certitude of vocation. But he was a product of his times, and he too was caught up in the understanding of what the Messiah characteristics would be. And the Messiah, the understanding of the Messiah, at least amongst those early first century, you know, before the common era to common era, was that the Messiah would be a military leader. So there's a certain expectation if you're expecting a general. If you're expecting a general or if you're expecting someone to go up against Rome, there's a certain look, there's a certain style, you sort of a certain, you know, there's a certain character arc that you expect people to settle into that. So John is 
he's listening. He's listening with very keen ears from his prison vantage point to see if these things are starting to unfold, to see if perhaps people are starting to mobilize, to take up arms, to ready to stick it to, to, to Rome. John's like, I'm still in prison, so may, maybe things aren't happening as quickly as I would like, but maybe they are happening, so I'm going to send my disciples out just for clarification. And that, that doesn't lessen John's appeal for me, and I hope it doesn't lessen John's appeal for you. John is still, as Jesus says, there are none born of women who are as significant as John the Baptist. So that doesn't lessen his appeal, that he has a human moment, that he needs a point of clarification. We do too. <laughs> Sometimes we don't know what's going on. We're like, where can I go get some answers? Real answers. Not, not that schlock we get on social, um, proper answers, right? So we, we too need clarification from time to time. So I don't fault John for that. So John sends his disciples to do a little bit of legwork for him and say, look, if you could just, you could just have a few moments with Jesus, just ask him what's going on. Because I just, I just need to know, right? I, don't, I got nothing to do here in my cell, so I just need to know what's happening. Because I was proclaiming something, and from what I'm hearing, I don't think it's happening yet. So the disciples come to Jesus as he is engaging in ministry, and they come with a, with a very, it's just such a matter-of-fact question the way Matthew's gospel lays it out. Look, we come on behalf of John, and uh, we just got to ask you, Jesus, are you the one, or are we to wait for another? Now, what I like about this is, first of all, is how direct it is. There's no beating around the bush. Like, are you the Messiah or not? Right? This is a question that... that and this was put to him in a loving fashion because there are, there are other instances in the gospel where people are like, if you're the Messiah, you know, you, you need to tell us plainly where it's more aggressive, where people are coming at Jesus with an ultimatum. John's disciples, on behalf of John, are not coming at Jesus with a sense of ultimatums like, you know, are you, are you fraudulent? They just want to know, on the basis of the things that he is doing, if you are the Messiah, just clarify, because we had an image of the Messiah in our heads. It doesn't seem to quite align with what you're doing, so we're not ready to discount you. That's why we're coming to the source to ask you plainly, who, who are you? Who are you? Jesus takes no offense because he responds, you go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news brought to them, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Now, when those two disciples of John go back to deliver their message, Jesus then turns to the crowd, because basically wherever Jesus was, there was, there was a crowd. There was, it was a crowd because, one, people wanted to see him, to hear him, to interact with him. They were mystified. They were intrigued by him. They, too, ha probably had questions, which sometimes maybe they felt that they were too embarrassed or too shy or too out of place, or maybe it's the wrong question. Well, which one of us were the students in school who really had the question asked but we didn't want to ask because we wouldn't look foolish, right? I mean, who is that? And the teacher tries to uh, calm you and says, there are no stupid questions or foolish questions or inappropriate questions. And then they soon find out that when the questions come for them, maybe, maybe there are some questions that are more for like after the class, <laughs> not during class, because it could set the whole class on a trajectory. But maybe that's how it was when people were watching Jesus do his ministry. Maybe the boldness that John's disciples 
presented by asking Jesus in front of, they didn't pull him aside, they just assumed that they asked him right there in front of the people uh, for clarification. You've got a lot of people following you. Who are you? What are you doing? It's a valid question, and it's good because people were at the early aspects of Jesus' ministry, and they don't want to be wandering into strange myths. You want to kind of know from the outset, what are you getting into? So Jesus turns to the crowd that was gathered there after he has told his, John's disciples, you go and tell John what you see in here. And I tell you, this list is it's pretty impressive, right? It's pretty impressive. The, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. That's, that's, that's pretty good, you know? You may not be the kind of Messiah that we thought, but you're getting some stuff done here. So we're going to go back and we're going to tell John that and let him process that with the time that he's got left on earth. But then he turns because I think the exchange between Jesus, this is, you have to realize, this is my interpretation. You are free to do your own homework. In fact, I encourage you. But I'm thinking that that exchange between Jesus and John's disciples probably had some members of the crowd going, hmm, because, you know, there were people who turned out to see John at the River Jordan because they thought maybe he was the Messiah, right? He sure sounded the part if he didn't look the part. He may not have looked the part because he was wearing natural skins, you know, the, the latest of natural fashions and just eating foraged food, right? Very, um, you know, very grassroots uh, sustainability kind of guy. So maybe there was that sense in which he doesn't look the part, but he sure sounds the part. He sure has an urgency in his voice. There's a provocation in his voice. So when, when Jesus is clarifying, by not really clarifying, but just basically sort of saying, this is the ministry that I am doing, John needs to make what he will of that, he turns to the crowd because he doesn't want the crowd to start to peel away and doubt John either because it's on John's proclamation that they even decided to pursue Jesus. You have to remember that John the Baptist is a very, he's an, he's an incredibly important character in the Christian narrative. And without his message of urgency and without the vitality that he brought to it, I think a lot of people would have been like, yeah, I hear the Messiah is coming, but I don't know. I just bought a new team of oxen. I got to get them broken in. I'm starting this new business. I just got married and my wife had another kid. And, you know, life gets in the way, even for first century people. We always think that, oh, just because those people lived back then before digital times, they didn't have much to do. They had plenty to do. And there were plenty of distractions that were fit for them in their times as well. So it was John's message of urgency that had them thinking, maybe I better put this, I was going to do this thing, maybe I better put that on hold because there's this other thing that's going on, I need to go check that out. So they came down to check out Jesus on behalf of John's invitation. So let's make that connection, and let's be clear about that. But now that John is exhibiting some hesitation about this person he proclaimed, Jesus has to come and now cover for John. Who did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Some sort of like person who blows this way? Someone dressed in soft robes? I love being dressed in my soft robe because it lets me know how ineffectual I am, right? He'll hide behind the gown, right? He looks the part, but we know he's weak and ineffectual. So who did you go to see someone? He goes, no, people in soft robes are in palaces. Who did you go out to see? He goes, a prophet? He goes, yeah, but even more than that, 
Jesus calls John the prophet of prophets because he was the one right before the Messiah arrived, right before. It's not a question of like many, many generations, like there will come a time off the stump of Jesse, a shoot will rise, you know, all that poetical stuff. No, John was here and Jesus, they like, it's like a Venn diagram. Their circles overlapped in real time. But now that Jesus is calling and summoning disciples and baptizing them with the Holy Spirit and showing them the reality of God in ways that they never imagined, he needs to say, even as great as John the Baptist was, none born of women greater than John the Baptist, he says, the least in the kingdom of God, which is basically the most down-and-out individual who believes in the promise. The person who has lost everything, the person who has become the embarrassment to their family, the person who can't keep a job, the person who's always cycling through relationships, the person who is, who is caught up in just poor decisions, try as they might to not be that miserable offender. If they latch themselves onto the promise, they're greater than John the Baptist. That's how I interpret that. The least in the kingdom of God. I mean, you have to attach yourself to the promise, right? I mean, there, there, there is that. I mean, there's that prerequisite. Attach yourself to the promise of the reality that Jesus ushers us into, true worship. Attach yourself to that promise, and you will even ascend that of John the Baptist. Now, if that's not an invitation for those who were hearing it, if they could understand it and come to live into that promise, then I don't know what is. But the thing is, that promise still reverberates right through the present-day ranks of Christendom uh, to this day. At least it should. Now, the point I want to stress, and I think this is the point that this, this pericope from Matthew is trying to stress, is that even to this day, in our, with, with all the means that we have to indulge in information, I, I, I read an article that says that the average individual consumes eight gigabytes of information every day. Now, for those of you who are voracious readers, just maybe it's 15, 20. Eight gigabytes of information, folks. I know you, you, you see your little flash drive, you go, I don't even know what that means. It means a lot. That's what it means, okay? It means, it means that's, a, that's a tremendous amount of data. That's, that's video, that's radio, that's podcasts, that's printed word. Eight gigabytes a day. We are voraciously crunching data all the time. But even in the midst of all of that, and a lot of that might even be religious literature, those of us doing our daily devotionals, reading our Bibles every day, staying on top of the word, right? Listening to sermons. Uh, you know, not just mine, right? There are great many preachers give you good stuff. So with all of that information, we aren't unlike John the Baptist in terms of having a preconceived notion of what we think God is doing in this world and the way that God should be doing it. So we too need to pause for points of clarification because we might be thinking that God should be working a specific certain way and when we don't see that, we go, maybe God isn't working. See, because that's, that's what the John, the John and Jesus narrative was, uh, was unpacking. That Jesus was out there doing the work of God, but John didn't understand that his messianic work. This is John the Baptist, okay? This is not Shmo. This is John the Baptist. And he's like, well, I, don't, I don't know. It doesn't, 
doesn't seem messianic to me. I need, I need some clarification. No shame. We do too. We do too. World is shifting, a lot of information coming at us. Uh, we, we see things unfolding in the world. My question that I want to pose to the congregation is that God is always working, always working, always moving, always breathing, always having a tremendous effect on this world. We may not always perceive it because perhaps maybe it's happening to groups we've already dismissed. Maybe it's happening in areas that we don't consider. Maybe it's happening in a way that we wouldn't uh, envision or we cannot accept. Sometimes the reality of God happens in ways that we go, well, my God wouldn't do that. Come on now. We're among friends. We all have known that someone has received a blessing, but we don't count it as a blessing because we don't particularly care for those people and that group of people, their ways, their doings, their being, their existence. So that can't be of God. That's, um, uh, they're delusional. They're calling themselves blessed, but we know better. <laughs> mm -mm, God doesn't look like that. This was the problem that John was having. That even in the midst of the blind receiving their sight and the mute speaking and the poor having the good news brought to them, and John obviously was hearing that, but he was like, yeah, but where are the swords? Where's Rome being taken down? Where's, who, who's going to spring me from my prison? Where is the power and the might. See, we always think that God needs to speak in shouts, but friends, I think God does effective work in a whisper. We don't appreciate whispers anymore because we think whispers are representative of some secret business that's going on over here, some nefarious plot to overthrow us. But sometimes in that quiet, still moment, it's we're, we, we wrap ourselves like Isaiah at the mantle of the cave, and it's in the stillness that we hear God's voice. Not in the shouting. And I, and I, like, I'm a high-energy guy when I get in the pulpit. I wave my arms about, do some silly stuff. Like, look at me. You know, I mean, I like to, I like to be goofy. I do. Because sometimes I just think there's an excitement that this text elicits that we don't free ourselves up enough. I mean, I don't know. Maybe if we had a couple of taps in the basement and, you know, get tanked up for worship, then maybe we could, like, cut loose and be a little bit more into the vibe. But... We're a dry church. We have been for many years, so I guess that's off the table. But, but, is, but is the message itself not enough to animate us? So in my silliness, but I also appreciate the still moments too. I also appreciate the, the efficacy of God in quiet spaces. And when we are quiet enough to hear that, we'll say, oh, forgive me for my foolishness, God. I didn't realize how hard you were at work and how vast and how far and how much that you were moving us and advancing us along so we do not submit to our poor nature, but that we can actually see your brilliance played out across hemispheres. Amen indeed, Al. Let's just leave it at that.